Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 5 of The Golden Bough, Volume 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. The Golden Bough, Volume 1, Chapter 3, Subchapter 2, Homeopathic or Imitative Magic, Part 4. Homeopathic Magic or Imitative Magic in Fishing and Hunting The Indians of British Columbia live largely upon the fish which abound in their seas and rivers. If the fish do not come in due season and the Indians are hungry, a Nukta wizard will make an image of a swimming fish and put it into the water in the direction from which the fish generally appear. This ceremony, accompanied by a prayer to the fish to come, will cause them to arrive at once. The islanders of Torres Straits use models of dugong and turtles to charm dugong and turtle to their destruction. The Toradjes of central Celebes believe that things of the same sort attract each other by means of their indwelling spirits or vital ether. Hence they hang up the jawbones of deer and wild pigs in their houses, in order that the spirits which animate these bones may draw the living creatures of the same kind into the path of the hunter. In the island of Nias, where a wild pig has fallen into the pit prepared for it, the animal is taken out and its back is rubbed with nine fallen leaves in the belief that this will make nine more wild pigs fall into the pit just as the nine leaves fell from the tree. In the East Indian islands of Separoa, Harokoa, and Noisa Lot, when a fisherman is about to set a trap for fish in the sea, he looks out for a tree of which the fruit has been much pecked at by birds. From such a tree he cuts a stout branch and makes of it the principal post in his fish trap, for he believes that just as the tree lured many birds to its fruit, so the branch cut from that tree will lure many fish into the trap. The western tribes of British New Guinea employ a charm to aid the hunter in spearing dukong or turtle. A small bale which haunts coconut trees is placed in the hole of the spear haft into which the spearhead fits. This is supposed to make the spearhead stick fast in the dugong or turtle just as the beetle sticks fast to a man's skin when it bites him. When a Cambodian hunter has set his nets and taken nothing, he strips himself naked, goes some way off, then strolls up to the net as if he did not see it, lets himself be caught in it, and cries, Hello, what's this? I'm afraid I'm caught. After that, the net is sure to catch game. A pantomime of the same sort has been acted within living memory in our Scottish highlands. The Reverend James MacDonald, now of Ray in Caithness tells us that in his boyhood, when he was fishing with companions about Loch Eileen, and they had had no bites for a long time, they used to make a pretense of throwing one of their fellows overboard and hauling him out of the water, as if he were a fish. After that, trout or silk would begin to nibble, according as the boat was on fresh or salt water. Before a carrier Indian goes out to snare martins, he sleeps by himself for about ten nights beside the fire with a little stick pressed down on his neck. 
this naturally causes the fall stick of his trap to drop down on the neck of the marten. Among the Galeries, who inhabit a district in the northern part of Halmahia, a large island to the west of New Guinea, it is a maxim that when you are loading your gun to go out shooting, you should always put the bullet in your mouth before you insert it in the gun, for by so doing, you practically eat the game that is to be hit by the bullet, which therefore cannot possibly miss the mark. A Malay who has baited a trap for crocodiles and is awaiting results is careful in eating his curry always to begin by swallowing three lumps of rice successively, for this helps the bait to slide more easily down the crocodile's throat. He is equally scrupulous not to take any bones out of his curry, for if he did, it seems clear that the sharp pointed stick on which the bait is skewered would similarly work itself loose and the crocodile would get off with the bait. Hence, in these circumstances, it is prudent for the hunter, before he begins his meal, to get somebody else to take the bones out of his curry, otherwise he may at any moment have to choose between swallowing a bone or losing the crocodile. Negative Magic or Taboo This last rule is an instance of the things which the hunter abstains from doing, lest on the principle that like produces like, they should spoil his luck. For it is to be observed that the system of sympathetic magic is not merely composed of positive precepts and comprises a very large number of negative precepts, that is, prohibitions. It tells you not merely what to do, but also what to leave undone. The positive precepts are charms, the negative precepts are taboos. In fact, the whole doctrine of taboo, or at all events a large part of it, would seem to be only a special application of sympathetic magic, which is two great laws of similarity and contact. Though these laws are certainly not formulated in so many words or even conceived in the abstract by the savage, they are nevertheless implicitly believed by him to regulate the course of nature quite independently of human will. He thinks that if he acts in a certain way, certain consequences will inevitably follow in virtue of one or other of these laws, and if the consequences of a particular act appear to him likely to prove disagreeable or dangerous, he is naturally careful not to act in that way, lest he should incur them. In other words, he abstains from doing that which, in accordance with his mistaken notions of cause and effect, he falsely believes would injure him. In short, he subjects himself to a taboo. Thus taboo is so far a negative application of practical magic. Positive magic or sorcery says, do this in order that so and so may happen. Negative magic or taboo says, do not do this, lest so and so should happen. The aim of positive magic or sorcery is to produce a desired event. The aim of negative magic or taboo is to avoid an undesirable one. But both consequences, the desirable and the undesirable, are supposed to be brought about in accordance with the laws of similarity and contact. And just as the desired consequence is not really affected by the observance of a magical ceremony, so the dreaded consequence does not really result from the violation of a taboo. If the supposed evil necessarily followed a breach of taboo, the taboo would not be a taboo, but a precept of morality or common sense. It is not a taboo to say, do not put your hand in the fire. It is a rule of common sense, because the forbidden act entails a real, not an imaginary evil. In short, those negative precepts which we call taboo are just as vain and futile as those positive precepts which we call sorcery. The two things are merely opposite sides or poles of one great disastrous fallacy, a mistaken conception of the association of ideas. Of that fallacy, sorcery is the positive and taboo the negative. 
if we give the general name of magic to the whole erroneous system both theoretical and practical then taboo may be defined as the negative side of practical magic to put this in tabular form on tables displayed on the page we have a tree diagram of magic leading on to theoretical magic as a pseudo science and practical magic as pseudo art with practical leading on to positive magical sorcery and negative magical taboo taboo is to be observed in fishing and hunting on the principle of sympathetic magic i have made these remarks on taboo and its relations to magic because i am about to give some instances of taboos observed by hunters fishermen and others and i wish to show that they fall under the head of sympathetic magic being only particular applications of that general theory thus it is a rule with a galeries that when you have caught fish and strung them on a line you may not cut the line through or next time you go a-fishing your fishing line will be sure to break among the eskimos of baffin land boys are forbidden to play cat's cradle because if they did so their fingers might in later life become entangled in the harpoon line here the taboo is obviously an application of the law of similarity which is the basis of homeopathic magic as a child's fingers are entangled by the string in playing cat's cradle so they will be entangled by the harpoon line when he is a man and hunts whales spinning tabooed in certain cases on the principle of homeopathic magic again among the huzuls who inhabit the wooded northeastern slopes of the carpathian mountains the wife of a hunter may not spin while her husband is eating or the game will turn and wind like the spindle and the hunter will be unable to hit it here again the taboo is clearly derived from the law of similarity so too in most parts of ancient italy women were forbidden by law to spin on the high roads as they walked to even to carry their spindles openly because any such action was believed to injure the crops probably the notion was that the twirling of the spindle would twirl the cornstalks and prevent them from growing straight so too among the enos of segalene a pregnant woman may not spin nor twist ropes for two months before her delivery because they think that if she did so the child's guts might be entangled like the thread for a like reason in bilaspur a district of india when the chief men of a village meet in council no one should twirl a spindle or they think that if such a thing were to happen the discussion like the spindle would move in a circle and never be wound up in the east indian islands of saparoia heroke and noesa lelt anyone who comes to the house of a hunter must walk straight in he may not loiter at the door for were he to do so the game would in like manner stop in front of the hunter's snares and then turn back instead of being caught in a trap for a similar reason it is a rule with the torejas of central celebes that no one may stand or loiter on the ladder of a house where there is a pregnant woman for such delay would retard the birth of the child and in various parts of sumatra the woman herself in these circumstances is forbidden to stand at the door or on the top rung of the house ladder under pain of suffering hard labour for her imprudence in neglecting so elementary a precaution taboos observed in the search for camphor on the principle of homeopathic magic malays engaged in the search for camphor eat their food dry and take care not to pound their salt fine the reason is that the camphor occurs in the form of small grains deposited in the cracks of the trunk of the camphor tree accordingly it seems plain to the malay that if while seeking for camphor he were to eat his salt finely ground the camphor would be found also in fine grains 
whereas by eating his salt course he ensures that the grains of the camphor will also be large camphor hunters in borneo use the leathery sheath of the leaf stalk or the penang palm as a plate for food and during the whole of the expedition they will never wash the plate for fear that the camphor might dissolve and disappear from the crevice of the tree apparently they think that to wash that plate would be to wash out the camphor crystals from the trees in which they are embedded taboo is observed by hunters on the principle of homeopathic magic in laos a province of siam a rhinoceros hunter will not wash himself for fear that as a consequence the wounds inflicted on the rhinoceros might not be mortal and that the animal might disappear in one of the caves full of water in the mountains the chief product of some parts of laos is lac this is a resinous gum exuded by a red insect on the young branches of trees to which the little creatures have to be attached by hand all who engage in the business of gathering the gum abstain from washing themselves and especially from cleansing their heads lest by removing the parasites from their hair they should detach the other insects from the boughs some of the brazilian indians would never bring a slaughtered deer into their hut without first hamstringing it believing that if they failed to do so they and their children would never be able to run down their enemies apparently they thought that by hamstringing the animal they at the same stroke deprived their foemen of the use of their legs no arikara indian would break a marrow bone in a hut for they think that were he to do so their horses would break their legs in the prairie again a blackfoot indian who has set a trap for eagles and is watching it would not eat rosebuds on any account for he argues that if he did so and an eagle alighted near the trap the rosebuds in his own stomach would make the bird itch and the result that instead of swallowing the bait the eagle would merely sit and scratch himself following this train of thought the eagle hunter also refrains from using an owl when he is looking after his snares for surely if he were to scratch with an owl the eagle would scratch him the same disastrous consequence would follow if his wives and children at home used an oar while he is out after eagles and accordingly they are they are forbidden to handle the tool in his absence for fear of putting him in bodily danger homeopathic taboos and contagious taboos all the foregoing taboos being based on a law of similarity may be called homeopathic taboos the colones an indian tribe of eastern peru make use of poisoned arrows in the chase but there are some animals such as armadillos certain kinds of falcons and a species of vulture which they would on no account shoot at with these weapons for they believe that between the poisoned arrows which they use and the supply of poison at home there exists a sympathetic relation of such a sort that if they shot at any of these creatures with poison shafts all the poison at home would be spoilt which would be a great loss to them here the exact train of thought is not clear but we may suppose that the animals in question are believed to possess a power of counteracting and annulling the effect of the poison and by consequently if they are touched by it or the poison including the store of it at home would be robbed of its virtue however that may be it is plain that the superstition rests on the law of contact on the notion namely that things which have once been in contact remain sympathetically in contact with each other always the poison in which the hunter wounds an animal has once been in contact with the store of poison at home hence if the poison in the wound loses its venom so necessarily will all the poison at home these may be called contagious taboos foods tabooed on the principle of homeopathic magic 
Among the taboos observed by savages, none perhaps are more numerous or important than the prohibitions to eat certain foods, and of such prohibitions many are demonstrably derived from the law of similarity and are accordingly examples of negative magic. Just as a savage eats many animals or plants in order to acquire certain desirable qualities with which he believes them to be endowed, so he avoids eating many other animals and plants lest he should acquire certain undesirable qualities with which he believes them to be infected. In eating the former, he practices positive magic. In abstaining from the latter, he practices negative magic. Many examples of such positive magic will meet us later on. Here I will give a few instances of such negative magic or taboo. Malagasy taboos on food based on the principle of homeopathic magic. For example, in Madagascar, soldiers are forbidden to eat a number of foods lest on the principle of homeopathic magic they should be tainted by certain dangerous or undesirable properties which are supposed to inhere in these particular viands. Thus they may not taste hedgehog as it is feared that this animal, from its propensity of coiling up into a ball when alarmed, will impart a timid, shrinking disposition to those who partake of it. Again, no soldier should eat an ox's knee, lest, like an ox, he should become weak in the knees and unable to march. Further, the warrior should be careful to avoid partaking of a cock that has died fighting or anything that has been speared to death, and no male animal may be on any account be killed in his house while he is away at the wars, for it seems obvious that if he were to eat the cock that had died fighting, he would himself be slain on the field of battle. If he were to partake of an animal that had been speared, he would be speared himself. If a male animal were killed in his house during his absence, he would himself be killed in like manner, and perhaps at the same instant. Further, the Malagasy soldier must destroy kidneys, because in the Malagasy language, the word for kidney is the same as that for shot. So shot it would certainly be if he ate out a kidney. Kafra and Zulu taboos on food based on the principle of homeopathic magic. Again, a Kafra has been known to refuse to eat two mice caught at the same time in one trap, alleging that were he to do so his wife would give birth to twins. Yet the same man would eat freely of mice if they were caught singly. Clearly he imagined that if he ate the two mice he would be infected with a virus of doublets and would communicate the infection to his wife. Amongst the Zulus, there are many foods which are similarly forbidden on homeopathic principles. It may be well to give some specimens of these prohibitions, as they have been described by the Zulus themselves. There is among the black men, they say, the custom of abstaining from certain foods. If a cow has the calf taken from her dead, and the mother too dies before the calf is taken away, young people who have never had a child abstain from the flesh of that cow. I do not mean to speak of girls. There is not even a thought of whether they can eat it. For it is said that the cow will produce a similar evil among the women, so that one of them will be like the cow when she is in childbirth, be unable to give birth like the cow, and die together with her child. On this account, therefore, the flesh of such a cow is abstained from. Further, pig's flesh is not eaten by girls on any account, for it is an ugly animal, its mouth is ugly, its snout is long. Therefore girls do not eat it, thinking, if they eat it, a resemblance to the pig will appear among their children. They abstain from it on that account. There are many things which are abstained from among black people through fear of bad resemblance. For it is said, there was a person who once gave birth to an elephant and a horse, but we do not know if that is true. But they are now abstained from on that account through thinking that they will produce an evil resemblance if eaten. And the elephant is said to produce an evil resemblance 
for when it is killed many parts of its body resemble those of a female its breasts for instance are just like those of a woman young people therefore fear to eat it it is only eaten on account of famine when there is no food and each of the young women say it is no matter if i do give birth to an elephant and live that is better than not to give birth to it and die of famine so it is eaten from mere necessity another thing which is abstained from is the entrails of cattle men do not eat them because they are afraid if they eat them the enemy will stab them in the bowels young men do not eat them they are eaten by old people another thing which is not eaten is the underlip of a bullock for it is said a young person must not eat it for it will produce an evil resemblance in the child the lip of the child will tremble continually for the lower lip of the bullock moves constantly they do not therefore eat it for if a child of a young person is seen with his mouth trembling it is said he was injured by his father who ate the lower lip of a bullock also another thing which is abstained from is that portion of the pouch of a bullock which is called umtala for the umtala has no villi it has no pile it is merely smooth and hard it is therefore said if it is eaten by young people their children will be born without hair and their heads will be bare like a man's knee it is therefore abstained from magical telepathy the reader may have observed that in some of the foregoing examples of taboos the magical influence is supposed to operate at considerable distances thus among the blackfeet indians the wives and children of an eagle hunter are forbidden to use an awl during his absence lest the eagles should scratch the distant husband and father and again no male animal may be killed in the house of a malagasy soldier while he is away at the wars lest the killing of the animal should entail the killing of the man this belief in the sympathetic influence exerted on each other by persons or things at a distance is of the essence of magic whatever doubt science may entertain as to the possibility of action at a distance magic has none faith in telepathy is one of its first principles a modern advocate of the influence of mind upon mind at a distance would have no difficulty in convincing a savage a savage believed in it long ago and what is more he acted on his belief with a logical consistency such as his civilized brother in the faith has not yet so far as i am aware exhibited in his conduct for the savage is convinced not only that magical ceremonies affect persons and things afar off but that the simplest acts of daily life may do so too hence on important occasions the behaviour of friends and relations at a distance is often regulated by a more or less elaborate code of rules the neglect of which may be the one set of persons would it is supposed entail misfortune or even death on the absent ones in particular when a party of men are out hunting or fighting their kinsfolk at home are often expected to do certain things or to abstain from doing certain others for the sake of ensuring the safety and success of the distant hunters or warriors i will now give some instances of this magic telepathy both in its positive and in its negative aspect telepathy in hunting among the diaks shams hottentots etc in laos when an elephant hunter is starting for the chase he warns his wife not to cut her hair or oil her body in his absence for if she cut her hair the elephant would burst the toils if she oiled herself it would slip through them when a diak village has turned out to hunt wild pigs in the jungle the people who stay at home may not touch oil or water with their hands during the absence of their friends for if they did so the hunters would all be butter-fingered and the prey would slip through their hands in setting out to look for the rare and precious eagle wood on the mountains cham peasants enjoin their wives whom they leave at home not to scold or quarrel in their absence for such domestic brawls would lead to their husbands being rent in pieces by bears and tigers 
a hottentot woman whose husband is out hunting must do one of two things all the time he is away either she must light a fire and keep it burning till he comes back or if she does not choose to do that she must go to the water and continue to splash it above on the ground when she is tired with throwing the water about no place may be taken by her servant but the exercise must in any case be kept up without cessation to cease splashing the water or to let the fire out would be equally fatal to the husband's prospect of a successful bag in yule island torres straits when the men are gone to fetch sago a fire is lit and carefully kept burning the whole time of their absence for the people believe that if it went out the voyagers would fare ill at the other end of the world the lapse similarly object to extinguish brand and water while any members of the family are out fishing since to do so would spoil their luck telepathy in hunting among the Kunegs, eskimos and california indians among the Kunegs of alaska a traveller once observed a young woman lying wrapped in a bearskin in the corner of a hut on asking whether she were ill he learned that her husband was out whale fishing and that until his return she had to lie fasting in order to ensure a good catch among the eskimos of alaska similar notions prevail the women during the whaling season remain in comparative idleness as it is considered not good for them to sew while the men are out in the boats if during this period any garments should need to be repaired the women must take them far back out of sight of the sea and mend them there in little tents in which just one person can sit and while the crews are at sea no work should be done at home which would necessitate pounding or hewing or any kind of noise and in the huts of men who are away in the boats no work of any kind whatever should be carried on when the eskimos of avalik and Iklulik are away hunting on the ice the bedding may not be raised up because they think that to do so would cause the ice to crack and drift off and so the men might be lost and among these people in the winter when the new moon appears boys must run out of the snow-house take a handful of snow and put it into the kettle it is believed that this helps the hunter to capture the seal and bring it home when the Maidu Indians of California were engaged in driving deer into the snares which they had prepared for them, and which consisted of fences stretched from tree to tree, the women and children who were left behind in the village had to observe a variety of regulations. The women had to keep quiet and spend much of the time indoors. The children might not romp, shout, jump over things, kick, run, or fall down, or throw stones. If these rules were broken, it was believed that the deer would become unmanageable and would jump the fence so that the whole drive would be unsuccessful telepathy in hunting among the giliacs dukagers etc while a giliac hunter is pursuing the game in the forest his children at home are forbidden to make drawings on wood or on sand for they fear that if the children did so the paths in the forest would become as perplexed as the lines in the drawings so that the hunter might lose his way and never return a russian political prisoner once taught some giliac children to read and write but their parents forbade them to write when any of their fathers was away from home for it seemed to them that writing was a peculiarly complicated form of drawing and they stood aghast at the idea of the danger to which such a drawing would expose the hunters out in the wild woods among the jukagirs of northeastern siberia when a young man is out hunting his unmarried sister at home may not look at his footprints nor eat certain parts of the game killed by him if she leaves the house while he is absent at the chase she must keep her eyes fixed on the ground and may not speak of the chase nor ask any questions about it 
when anuba of northeastern africa goes to el obeid for the first time he tells his wife not to wash or oil herself and not to wear pearls round her neck during his absence because by doing so she would draw down on him the most terrible misfortunes when the bushmen are out hunting any bad shots they may make are set down to such causes as that the children at home are playing on the men's beds or the like and that the wives who are allowed such things to happen are blamed for their husbands indifferent marksmanship telepathy in hunting supposed disastrous in effect of wife's infidelity elephant hunters in east africa believe that if their wives prove unfaithful in their absence this gives the elephant power over the pursuer who will accordingly be killed or severely wounded hence if a hunter hears of his wife's misconduct he abandons the chase and returns home if a wagogo hunter is unsuccessful or is attacked by a lion he attributes it to his wife's misbehaviour at home and returns to her in great wrath when he is away hunting she may not let any one pass behind her or stand in front of her as she sits and she must lie on her face in bed the moxos indians of eastern bolivia thought that if a hunter's wife was unfaithful to him in his absence he would be bitten by a serpent or a jaguar accordingly if such an accident happened to him it was sure to entail the punishment and often the death of the woman whether she was innocent or guilty and a Lutian hunter of sea otters thinks that he cannot kill a single animal if during his absence from home his wife should be unfaithful or his sister unchaste. Telepathy in the Search for the Sacred Cactus The Huicol Indians of Mexico treat as a demigod, a species of cactus which throws the eater into a state of ecstasy. The plant does not grow in their country, and has to be fetched every year by men who make a journey of forty-three days for the purpose meanwhile the wives at home contribute to the safety of their absent husbands by never walking fast much less running while the men are on the road they also do their best to ensure the benefits which in the shape of rain good crops and so forth are expected to flow from the sacred mission with the intention they subject themselves to severe restrictions like those imposed upon their husbands during the whole of the time which elapses till the festival of the cactus is held neither party washes except on certain occasions and then only with water brought from the distant country where the holy plant grows they also fast much eat no salt and are bound to strict continence any one who breaks this law is punished with illness and moreover jeopardizes the result which all are striving for health like and life are to be gained by gaving the cactus the gourd of the god of fire but inasmuch as the pure fire cannot benefit the impure men and women must not only remain chaste for the time being but must also purge themselves from the taint of past sin. Hence, four days after the men have started, the women gather and confess to Grandfather Fire, which, what men they have been in love with from childhood till now. They may not admit a single one, for if they did so, the men would not find a single cactus. So to refresh their memories, each one prepares a string with as many knots as she has had lovers. This she brings to the temple, and standing before the fire, she mentions aloud all the men she has scored on her string, name after name. Having ended her confessions, she throws a string into the fire, and when the god has consumed it in his pure flame, her sins are forgiven her, and she departs in peace. From now on the women are averse even to letting men pass near them. The cactus seekers themselves make, in like manner, a clean breast of all their frailties. For every peccadillo they tie a knot on a string, and after they have talked to all the five winds, 
they deliver the rosary of their sins to the leader who burns it in the fire. Telepathy in the Search for Camphor Many of the indigenous tribes of Sarawak are firmly persuaded that were the wives to commit adultery while their husbands are searching for camphor in the jungle, the camphor obtained by the men would evaporate. Husbands can discover by certain knots in the tree when their wives are unfaithful, and it is said that in former days many women were killed by jealous husbands on no better evidence than that of these knots. Further, the wives dare not touch a comb while their husbands are away collecting the camphor, for if they did so, the interstices between the fibres of the tree, instead of being filled with the precious crystals, would be empty like the spaces between the teeth of a comb. Telepathy in hunting, fishing, and trading. While men of the Taoripi, Omotumotu tribe of eastern New Guinea, are away hunting, fishing, fighting, or on any long journey, the people who remain at home must observe strict chastity, and may not let the fire go out. Those of them who stay in the men's clubhouses must further abstain from eating certain foods and from touching anything that belongs to others. A breach of these rules might, it is believed, entail the failure of the expedition to Lepathy in New Guinea. Among the tribes of Gilvig Bay in northwestern New Guinea, where the men are gone on a long journey, as to Sharam or Taidor, the wives and sisters left at home sing to the moon, accompanying the lay with the booming music of gongs. The singing takes place in the afternoons, beginning two or three days before the new moon, and lasting for the same time after it. If the silver sickle of the moon is seen in the sky, they raise a loud cry of joy. Asked why they do so, they answer, Now we see the moon, and so do our husbands. And now we know that they are well. If we did not sing, they would be sick, or some other misfortune would befall them. On nights when the moon is at the full, the natives of Dore, in northeastern New Guinea, go out fishing in the lagoons. The mode of proceeding is to poison the water with the pounded roots of a certain plant, which has a powerful narcotic effect. The fish are stunted by it, and are so easily caught. While the men are at work on the moonlit water, the people on the shore must keep as still as death with their eyes fixed on the fishermen. But no woman with child may be among them, for if she were there and looked at the water, the poison would be at once lose its effect and the fish would escape. Telepathy in the Kay Islands In the Kay Islands in the southwest of New Guinea, as soon as a vessel that is about to sail for a distant port has been launched, the part of the beach on which it lay is covered as speedily as possible with palm branches and becomes sacred. No one may thenceforth cross that spot till the ship comes home. To cross it sooner would cause a vessel to perish. Moreover, all the time that the voyage lasts, three or four young girls, specially chosen for the duty, are supposed to remain in sympathetic connection with the mariners and to contribute by their behaviour to the safety and success of the voyage. On no account except for the most necessary purpose may they quote the room that has been assigned to them. More than that, so long as the vessels believed to be at sea, they must remain absolutely motionless, crouched on their mats with their hands clasped between their knees. They may not turn their heads to the left or the right, or make any other movement whatsoever. If they did, it would cause the boat to pitch a toss, and they may not eat any sticky stuff, such as rice boiled in coconut milk, for the stickiness of the food would clog the passage of the boat through the water. When the sailors are supposed to have reached their destination, the strictness of these rules is somewhat relaxed. But during the whole time that the voyage lasts, the girls are forbidden to eat fish which have sharp bones or strings, 
such as the stingray, lest their friends at sea should be involved in sharp, stinging trouble. Telepathy in War Where beliefs like these prevail as to the sympathetic connection between friends at a distance, we need not wonder that above everything else war, with its stern yet stirring appeal to some of the steepest and tenderest of human emotions, should quicken in the anxious relations left behind a desire to turn the sympathetic bond to the utmost account for the benefit of the dear ones who may at any moment be fighting and dying far away. Hence to secure an end so natural and laudable, friends at home are apt to resort to devices which will strike us as pathetic or ludicrous, according as we may consider their object or the means adopted to effect it. Telepathy and war among the Dyaks. Thus in some districts of Borneo, when a Dyak is out head-hunting, his wife, or if he is unmarried, his sister, must wear a sword day and night in order that she may always be thinking of his weapons, and she may not sleep during the day, nor go to bed before two in the morning, lest her husband or brother should thereby be surprised in his sleep by an enemy. In other parts of Borneo, when the men are away on a warlike expedition, their mats are spread in their houses just as if they were at home, and the fires are kept till late in the evening and lighted again before dawn, in order that the men may not be cold. Further, the roofing of the house is open before daylight to prevent the distant husbands, brothers and sons from sleeping too late, and so being surprised by the enemy. While the Malay of the peninsula is away at the wars, his pillows and sleeping mat at home must be kept rolled up. If anyone else were to use them, the absent warrior's courage would fail and disaster would befall him. His wife and children may not have their hair cut in his absence, nor may he himself have his hair shorn. Telepathy and War Among the Sea Dyaks Among the Sea Dyaks of Banting and Sarawak, women strictly observe an elaborate code of rules while the men are away fighting. Some of the rules are negative and some are positive, but all alike are based on the principles of magic, homeopathy and telepathy. Amongst them are the following. The women must wake very early in the morning and open the windows as soon as it is light. Otherwise, their absent husbands will oversleep themselves. The women may not oil their hair, or the men will slip. The women may neither sleep nor doze by day, or the men will be drowsy on the march. The women must cook and scatter popcorn on the veranda every morning. So will the men be agile in their movements. The rooms must be kept very tidy, all boxes being placed near the walls. For if any one were to stumble over them, the absent husbands would fall and be at the mercy of the foe. At every meal a little rice must be left in the pot and put aside. So will the men far away always have something to eat, and need never go hungry. On no account may the women sit at the loom till their legs grow cramped. Otherwise their husbands will likewise be stiff in their joints, and unable to rise up quickly, or to run away from the foe. So in order to keep their husbands' joints supple, the women often vary their labours at the loom by working up and down the veranda. Further, they may not cover up their faces, or the men would not be able to find their way through the tall grass or jungle. Again, the women may not sew with a needle, or the men will tread on the sharp spikes set by the enemy in the path. Should a wife prove unfaithful while her husband is away, he will lose his life in the enemy's country. Some years ago, all these rules and more were observed by the women of Banting, while their husbands were fighting for the English against rebels. But alas, these tender precautions availed them little, for many a man whose faithful wife was keeping watch and ward for him at home found a soldier's grave. Telepathy and war among the Shans, the Timorese, and the Torajas. 
Among the Shans of Burma, the wife of an absent warrior has to observe certain rules. Every fifth day she rests and does not work. She fills an earthen goblet with water to the brim and puts flowers into it every day. If the water sinks or the flowers fade, it is an omen of death. Moreover, she may not sleep on her husband's bed during his absence, but she sweeps the bedding clean and lays it out every night. In the island of Timor, while war is being waged, the high priest never quits the temple. His food is brought to him or cooked inside. Day and night he must keep the fire burning, for if he were to let it die out, disaster would befall the warriors and would continue so long as the earth was cold. Moreover, he must drink only hot water during the time the army is absent, for every drought of cold water would damp the spirits of the people so that they could not vanquish the enemy. Among the Torajas of central Salives, when a party of men is out hunting for heads, the villagers who stay at home, and especially the wives of the head-hunters, have to observe certain rules in order not to hinder the absent men at their task. In the first place, the entrance to the lobo, or spirit house, is shut, for the spirits of the fathers who live in that house are now away with the warriors, watching over and guarding them, and if any one entered their house in their absence, they would hear the noise in return, and would be very angry at being thus called back from the campaign. Moreover, the people at home have to keep the house tidy. The sleeping mats of the absent men must be hung on beds, not rolled up as if they were to be away for a long time. Their wives and next of kin may not quit the house at night. Every night a light burns in the house, and a fire must be kept up constantly at the foot of the house ladder. Garments, turbans, and headdresses may not be laid aside at night. For if the turban or headdress were put off, the warrior's turban might drop from his head in the battle, and the wives may sew no garments. When the spirit of the headhunter returns home in his sleep, which is a Torajo expression for a soldier's dream, he must find everything there in good order, and nothing that could vex him. By the observance of these rules, say the Torajas, the souls of the headhunters are covered or protected, in order to make them strong, that they may not soon grow weary, Rice is strewn morning and evening on the floor of the house. Women, too, go about constantly with a certain plant, of which the pods are so light and feathery that they are easily wafted by the wind, for that helps to make the men nimble-footed. Telepathy and War Among the Galileese and the Key Islanders When Galileese men are going away to war, they are accompanied down to the boats by the women. But after the leave-taking is over, the women, in returning to their houses, must be careful not to stumble or fall, and the house they may neither be angry nor lift up weapons against each other, otherwise the men will fall and be killed in battle. Similarly, we saw that among the chams, domestic brawls at home are supposed to cause the searcher for eagle wood to fall a prey to wild beasts in the mountains. Further, Galerie's women may not lay down the chopping knives in the house while their husbands are at the wars. The knives must always be hung up on hooks. The reason for the rule is not given. We may conjecture that it is a fear list. If the chopping knives were laid down by the women at home, the men will be apt to lay down their weapons in the battle or at other inopportune moments. In the Kay Islands, when the warriors are departed, the women return indoors and bring in certain baskets containing fruits and stones. These fruits and stones they anoint and place on a board, murmuring as they do so, O Lord, Sun, Moon, let the bullets rebound from our husbands, brothers, betrothed, and other relations, just as raindrops rebound from these objects, which are smeared with oil. As soon as the first shot is heard, the baskets are put aside, 
and the women, seizing their fans, rush out of their houses. Then waving their fans in the direction of the enemy, they run through the village while they sing, O golden fans, let our bullets hit, and those of the enemy miss. In this custom, the ceremony of anointing stones in order that the bullets may recoil from the men like raindrops from the stones is a piece of pure homeopathic or imitative magic. But the prayer to the sun, as he will be pleased to give effect to the charm, is a religious and perhaps later addition. The waving of the fans seems to be a charm to direct the bullets toward or away from their mark, according as they are discharged from the guns of friends or foes. Telepathy and War Among the Malagasy An old historian of Madagascar informs us that, while the men are at the wars, and until their return, the women and girls cease not day and night to dance, and neither lie down or take food in their own houses. And although they are voluptuously inclined, they would not for anything in the world have an intrigue with another man while their husband is at the war, believing firmly that if that happened, their husband would be either killed or wounded. They believe that by dancing they impart strength, courage, and good fortune to their husbands. Accordingly, during such times they give themselves no rest, and this custom they observe very religiously. Similarly, a traveller of the 17th century writes that in Madagascar, when the man is in battle or under march, the wife continuously dances and sings, and will not sleep or eat in her own house, nor admit of the use of any other man, unless she be desirous to be rid of her own. For they entertain this opinion among them, that if they suffer themselves to be overcome in an intestine war at home, their husbands must suffer for it, being engaged in a foreign expedition. But on the contrary, if they believe themselves chastely and dance justly, that their then husbands, by some certain sympathetical operation, will be able to vanquish all their combatants. We have seen that among hunters in various parts of the world, the infidelity of the wife at home is believed to have a disastrous effect on her absent husband. In the Baybara Kabaliko, and among the Wagogo of East Africa, when the men are at the wars, the women at home are bound to chastity, and the Baybara Kabaliko, they must fast besides. Under similar circumstances in the islands of Liti, Moa, and Lakor, the women and children are forbidden to remain inside of the houses and to twine thread or weave. Telepathy and War Among the Natives of West Africa Among the Chi-speaking peoples of the Gold Coast, the wives and men who are away with the army paint themselves white and adorn their persons with beads and charms. On the day when a battle is expected to take place, they run about armed with guns, or sticks carved to look like guns, and taking green pawpaws, fruit shaped somewhat like a melon, they hack them with knives, as if they were chopping off the heads of the foe. The pantomime is no doubt merely an imitative charm to enable the men to do to the enemy as the women do to the pawpaws. In the West African town of Fremen, while the Ashanti war was raging some years ago, Mr. Fitzgerald Marriott saw a dance performed by women whose husbands had gone as carriers to the war. They were painted white and wore nothing but a short petticoat. At their head was a shriveled old sorceress in a very short white petticoat, her black hair arranged in a sort of long projecting horn, and her black face, breasts, arms, and legs profusely adorned with white circles and crescents. All carried along white brushes made of buffalo or horsetails, and as they danced they sang, Our husbands have gone to Ashantiland. May they sweep their enemies off the face of the earth. Telepathy and war among the American Indians. Among the Thompson Indians of British Columbia, when the men were on the warpath, the women performed dances at frequent intervals. 
These dances were believed to ensure the success of the expedition. The dancers flourished their knives, threw long, sharp-pointed sticks forward, or drew sticks with hooked ends, repeatedly backward and forward. Throwing the sticks forward was symbolic of piercing or warding off the enemy, and drawing them back was symbolic of drawing their own men from danger. The hook at the end of the stick was particularly well adapted to serve the purpose of a life-saving apparatus. The women always pointed their weapons towards the enemy's country. They painted their faces red and sang as they danced, and they prayed to the weapons to preserve their husbands and help them to kill many foes. Some had eagle down stuck on the points of their sticks. When the dance was over, these weapons were hidden. If a woman whose husband was at the war thought she saw hair or a piece of a scalp on the weapon when she took it out, she knew that her husband had killed an enemy. But if she saw a stain of blood on it, she knew he was wounded or dead. When the men of the Yuki tribe of Indians in California were away fighting, the women at home did not sleep. They danced continually in a circle, chanting and waving leafy wands. They said that if they danced all the time, their husbands would not grow tired. Among the Haida Indians of the Queen Charlotte Islands, when the men had gone to war, the women at home would get up very early in the morning and pretend to make war by falling upon their children and feign to take them for slaves. This was supposed to help their husbands to go and do likewise. If a wife were unfaithful to her husband, and while he was away on the warpath, he would probably be killed. For ten nights all the women at home lay with their heads towards the point of the compass to which the war canoes had paddled away. Then they changed about, for the warriors were supposed to be coming home across the sea. At Masset, the Haida women danced and sang war songs all the time their husbands were away at the wars and they had to keep everything about them in a certain order. It was thought that a wife might kill her husband by not observing these customs. Telepathy and War Among the Kafirs of the Hindu Kush In the Kafir district of the Hindu Kush, while the men are out raiding, the women abandon their work in the fields and assemble in the villages to dance day and night. The dances are kept up most of each day and the whole of each night. Sir George Robertson, who reports the custom, more than one watched the dancers dancing at midnight and in the early morning and could see by the fitful glow of the wood fire how haggard and tired they looked yet how gravely and earnestly they persisted in what they regarded as a serious duty the dances of these kafirs are said to be performed in honour of certain of the national gods but when we consider the custom in connection with the others which has just been passed in review we may reasonably surmise that it has or was originally in its essence a sympathetic charm intended to keep the absent warriors wakeful lest they should be surprised in their sleep by the enemy when a band of carabindians of the orinoco had gone on the warpath their friends left in the village used to calculate as nearly as they could the exact moment when the absent warriors would be advancing to attack the enemy then they took two lads laid them down on a bench and inflicted a most severe scourging on their bare backs. This the youth submitted to without a murmur, supported in their sufferings by the firm conviction in which they had been bred from childhood, that on the constancy and fortitude with which they bore the cruel ordeal depended the valour and success of their comrades in the battle. Homeopathic Magic at Making Drums Homeopathic Magic at Making Drums so much for the savage theory of telepathy in war and the chase. We pass now to other cases of homeopathic or imitative magic. While marriageable boys of the Mekio district in British New Guinea are making their drums, 
they have to live alone in the forest and to observe a number of rules which are based on the principle of homeopathic magic the drums will be used in the dances and in order that they may give out a resonant sonorous note great care must be taken in their construction the boys spend from two days to a week at the task having chosen a suitable piece of wood they scrape the outside into shape with a shell and hollow out the inside by burning it with a hot coal till the sides are very thin the skin of an iguana made supple by being steeped in coconut milk is then stretched over the hollow and tightened with string and glue all the time a boy is at work on his drums he must carefully avoid women for if a woman or a girl were to see him the drum would split and sound like an old cracked pot if he ate fish a bone would prick him and the skin of the drum would burst if he ate a red banana it would choke him and the drum would give a dull stifled note if he tasted grated coconut the white hands like the white particles of the nut would gnaw the body of the drum if he cooked his food in the ordinary round-bellied pot he would grow fat and would not be able to dance and the girls would despise him and say your belly is big it is a pot moreover he must strictly shun water for if he accidentally touched it with his feet his hands or his lips before the drum was quite hollow out he would throw the instrument away saying i have touched water my hot coal will be put out and i shall never be able to hollow out my drum various applications of homeopathic magic a highland witch can sink a ship by homeopathic or imitative magic she has only to set a small round dish floating in a milk pan full of water and then to croon her spell when the dish upsets in a pan the ship will go down in the sea they say that once three witches from harris left home at night after placing the milk pans thus on the floor and strictly charging a serving maid to let nothing come near it but while the girl was not looking a duck came in and squatted about in the water on the floor next morning the witches returned and asked if anything had come near the pan the girl said no whereupon one of the witches said to the other what a heavy sea we had last night coming round kabaghead if a wolf has carried off a sheep or a pig the estonians have a very simple mode of making him drop it they let fall anything that they happen to have at hand such as a cap or a glove or what is perhaps still better they lift a heavy stone then let it go by that act on the principle of homeopathic magic they compel the wolf to let go his booty end of section five section six of volume one of the golden bough by james fraser this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. volume one of the golden bough the magic art and the evolution of kings volume one chapter three sub chapter two part five homeopathic magic applied to make plants grow magic at sowing and planting among the beneficent uses to which a mistaken ingenuity has applied the principle of homeopathic or imitative magic is that of causing trees and plants to bear fruit in due season in thuringen the man who sows flax carries a seed in a long bag which reaches from his shoulders to his knees and he walks with long strides so that the bag sways to and fro on his back it is believed that this will cause the flax to wave in the wind in the interior of sumatra rice is sown by women who in sowing let their hair hang loose down their back in order that the rice may grow luxuriantly and have long stalks similarly in ancient mexico a festival was held in honour of the goddess of maize or the long-haired mother as she was called it began at the time when the plant had attained its full growth 
and fibres shooting forth from the top of the green ear indicated that the grain was fully formed. During this festival, the women wore their long hair unbound, shaking and tossing it in the dances, which were the chief feature in the ceremonial, in order that the tassel of the maize might grow in the profusion, that the grain might be correspondingly large and flat, and that the people might have abundance. Here's a Malay maxim to plant maize when your stomach is full, and to see it that your dibble is thick, for this will swell the ear of the maize. And they say that you should sow rice also with a full stomach, for then the ears will be full. The eminent novelist, Mr. Thomas Hardy, was once told that the reason why certain trees in front of his house near Weymouth did not thrive was that he looked at them before breakfast on an empty stomach. More elaborate still are the measures taken by an Estonian peasant woman to make her cabbages thrive. On the day when they are sown, she bakes great pancakes in order that the cabbages may have great broad leaves, and she wears a dazzling white hood in the belief that this will cause the cabbages to have fine white heads. Moreover, as soon as the cabbages are transplanted, a small round stone is wrapped up tightly in a white linen rag and set at the end of the cabbage bed, because in this way the cabbage heads will grow very white and firm. Among the huzels of the Carpathians, when a woman is planting cabbages, she winds many cloths about her head, in order that the heads of the cabbages may also be thick, and as soon as she has sown parsley, she grasps the calf her leg with both hands, saying, May it be as thick as that. Among the Kurds of East Prussia, who inhabit the long sandy tongue of land known as the Nerung, which passes the Baltic from a lagoon, when a farmer sows his fields in spring, he carries an axe and chops the earth with it, in order that the cornstalks may be so sturdy that an axe will be needed to hew them down. For much the same reason, a Bavarian sower in sowing wheat will sometimes wear a golden ring, in order that the corn may have a fine yellow colour. The Malagasy think that only people with a good, even set of teeth should plant maize, for otherwise there will be empty spaces in the maize cob corresponding to the empty spaces in the planter's teeth. Dancing and leaping high as a charm to make the crops grow high. In many parts of Europe, dancing or leaping high in the air are proved homeopathic modes of making the crops grow high. Thus in France, Comte, they say that you should dance at the carnival in order to make the hemp grow tall. In the Vosges mountains, the sower of hemp pulls his nether garments up as far as he can, because he imagines that the hemp he is sowing will attain the precise height to which he has succeeded in hitching up his breeches. And in the same region, another way of ensuring a good crop of hemp is to dance on the roof of the house on Twelfth Day, in Swabia, and among the Transylvanian Saxons, it is a common custom for a man who has sown hemp to leap high on the field, in the belief that this will make the hemp grow tall. All over Baden, till recently, it was a custom for the farmer's wife to give the sower a dish of eggs, or a cake baked with eggs, either before or after sowing, in order that he might leap as high as possible. This was deemed the best way of making the hemp grow high. For the same purpose, some people who had sown hemp used to dance the hemp dance, as it was called, on Shrove Tuesday, and in this dance also the dancers jumped as high as they could. In some parts of Baden, the hemp seed is thrown in the air as high as possible, and in Katzthal, the urchins leap over fires in order that the hemp may grow tall. Similarly, in many parts of Germany and Austria, the peasant imagines that he makes the flax grow tall by dancing or leaping high, or by jumping backwards from a table. The higher the leap, the taller will the flax be that year. A special season for thus promoting the growth of flax is Shrove Tuesday, but in some places it is Candlemas or Wellapurgis Night, either May Day. The scene of the performance is the flax field, the farmhouse or the village tavern. In some parts of eastern Prussia, the girls dance 
one by one in a large hoop at midnight on shrove tuesday the hoop is adorned with leaves flowers and ribbons and attached to it are a small bell and some flax strictly speaking the hoop should be wrapped in white linen handkerchiefs but the place of these often taken by many coloured bits of cloth wool and so forth while dancing with the hoop each girl was to wave her arms vigorously and cry flax grove or words to that effect when she has done she leaps out of the hoop or is lifted out of it by her partner in our halts when the sower has sown the flax he leaps up and flung the seed bag high in the air saying grow and turn green you have nothing else to do he hoped that the flax would grow as high as he flung the seed bag in the air at quellendorf in anhalt when the first bushel of seed corn had to be heaped up high in order that the corn stalks should grow tall and bear plenty of grain when macedonian farmers had done digging their fields they throw their spades up into the air and catching them again exclaim may the crop grow as high as a spade has gone plants and trees influenced homeopathically by a person's actual state the notion that a person can influence a plant homeopathically by his act or condition comes out clearly in a remark made by a malay woman being asked why she stripped the upper part of her body naked in reaping the rice she explained that she did it to make the rice husks thinner as she was tired of pounding thick husked rice clearly she thought that the less clothing she wore the less husk there would be on the rice fertilizing influence supposed to be exercised on plants by pregnant women or by women who have borne many children among the minangkabauers of sumatra when a rice barn has been built a feast is held of which a woman far advanced in pregnancy must partake her condition will obviously help the rice to be fruitful and multiply among the zulus a pregnant woman sometimes plants corn which is afterwards burned among the half-grown crops in order to fertilize them for a similar reason in syria when a fruit tree does not bear a gardener gets a pregnant woman to fasten a stone to one of its branches then the tree will be sure to bear fruit but the woman will run a risk of miscarriage having transferred her fertility or part of it to the tree the practice of loading with stones a tree which casts fruit is mentioned by myamonides though the rabbis apparently did not understand it the proceeding was most probably a homeopathic charm designed to load the tree with fruit in swabia they say if a fruit tree does not bear you should keep it loaded with a heavy stone all summer and next year it will be sure to bear the custom of trying stones to fruit trees in order to ensure a crop of fruit is followed also in sicily the magic virtue of a pregnant woman to communicate fertility is known to bavarian and austrian peasants who think that if you give the first fruit of a tree to a woman with child to eat the tree will bring forth abundantly next year in bohemia for a similar purpose the first apple of a young tree is sometimes plucked and eaten by a woman who has borne many children for then the tree will be sure to bear many apples in the zucker oberland switzerland they think that a cherry tree will bear abundantly if its first fruit is eaten by a woman who has just given birth to her first child in macedonia the first fruit of a tree should not be eaten by a barren woman but by one who has many children the nicobar islanders think it lucky to get a pregnant woman and her husband to plant seeds in gardens the greeks and romans sacrificed pregnant victims to the goddess of the corn and of the earth doubtless in order that the earth might teem with the corn swell in the year when a catholic priest remonstrated that the indians of the orinoco on allowing their women to sow the fields in the blazing sun with infants at their breasts the men answered father you don't understand these things and that is why they vex you you know that women are accustomed to bear children and that we men are not when the women sow the stalk of the maize bears two or three years the root of the yucca yields two or three basketfuls and everything multiplies in proportion now why is that 
simply because women know how to bring forth and know how to make the seed which they sow bring forth also let them sow then we men don't know as much about it as they do for the same reason probably the topinamas of brazil thought that if it was certain earth almond were planted by the men it would not grow among the ilocans of luzon the men sow bananas but the sower must have a young child on his shoulder or the bananas will not bear fruit when a tree bears no fruit the galileese think it is a male and their remedy is simple they put a woman's petticoat on the tree which being thus converted into a female will naturally prove prolific barren women supposed to make the fruit trees barren on the other hand the baganda believe that a barren wife infects her husband's garden with her own sterility and prevents the trees from bearing fruit hence a childless woman is generally divorced for a like reason probably the wajaka of east africa throw away the corpse of a childless woman with all her belongings in the forest or in any other place where the land is never cultivated moreover her body is not carried out of the door of the hut but a special passage is broken for it through the wall no doubt to prevent her dangerous ghost from finding its way back taboos based on the belief that persons can influence vegetation homeopathically by their axle states thus on the theory of homeopathic magic a person can influence vegetation either for good or for evil according to the good or the bad character of his axle states for example a fruitful woman makes plants fruitful a barren woman makes them barren hence a belief in the noxious and infectious nature of certain personal qualities or accidents has given rise to a number of prohibitions or rules of avoidance people abstain from doing certain things lest they should homeopathically infect the fruits of the earth with their own undesirable state or condition all such customs of abstention or rules of avoidance are examples of negative magic or taboo thus for example arguing from what may be called the infectiousness of personal axle states the galileries say that you ought not to shoot with the bow and arrows under a fruit tree or the tree will cast its fruit even as the arrows fall to the ground and that when you are eating watermelon you ought not to mix the pips which you spit out of your mouth with the pips which you have put aside to serve your seed for if you do though the pips you spat out may certainly spring up and blossom yet the blossoms will keep falling off just as the pips fell from your mouth and thus these pips will never bear fruit precisely the same train of thought leads the bavarian peasant to believe that if he allows the graft of a fruit tree to fall on the ground the tree that springs from the graft will let its fruit fall untimely the indians of santiago tepehulcan suppose that if a certain grain of the maize which they are about to sow were eaten by an animal the birds and the wild boars would come and devour all the rest and nothing would grow and if any of these indians has ever in his life buried a corpse he will never be allowed to plant a fruit tree for they say that the fruit would wither and they will not let such a man go fishing with them for the fish would flee from him certainly these indians imagine that anybody who has buried a corpse is thereby tainted so to say with an affection of death which might prove fatal to fruits and fish in nias the day after man has made preparations for planting rice he may not use fire or the crop would be parched and he may not spread his mats on the ground or the young plants would droop towards the earth when the chams of cochinchina are sowing their dry rice fields and desire that no rain should fall they eat their rice dry instead of moistening it as they usually do with the water in which vegetables and fish have been boiled that prevents rain from spoiling the rice persons influenced homeopathically by plants in the foregoing cases a person is supposed to influence vegetation homeopathically he infects trees or plants with qualities or accidents good or bad resembling and derived from his own but on the principle of homeopathic magic the influence is mutual 
the plant can infect the man just as much as man can infect the plant. In magic, as I believe in physics, action and reaction are equal and opposite. The Cherokee Indians are adepts in practical botany of the homeopathic sort. Thus wiry roots of the catgut plant or devil's shoestring, tephrosia, are so tough they can almost stop a plowshare in the furrow. Hence Cherokee women wash their heads with a decoction of the roots to make the hair strong, and Cherokee ball players wash themselves with it to toughen their muscles. To help them to spring quickly to their feet, away are thrown to the ground. These Indian ball players also bathe their limbs with a decoction of the small rush, Junkers tennis, which they say always recovers its erect position no matter how often it has trampled down. To improve a child's memory, the Cherokees beat up burrows in water, which has been fetched from a roaring waterfall. The virtue of this portion is threefold. The voice of the long man or river god is heard in the roar of the cataract. The stream seizes and holds things cast upon its surface, and there is nothing that sticks like a burr. Hence, it seems clear that with the portion of the child will drink in the lessons taught by the voice of the waters will seize them like the stream and stick fast them like a burr. For a like reason, the Cherokee fisherman ties the plant called Venus fly trap, Donea, to his fish trap, and he chews the plant and spits it on the bait. That will be sure to make the trap and the bait catch fish, just as Venus fly trap catches and digests the insect which alights on it. The Key Islanders think that certain creepers which adhere firmly to the trunks of trees prevent voyagers at sea from being wafted hither and thither at the mercy of the wind and the waves. The adhesive power of the plants enables the mariners to go straight to their destination. It is a gallery's belief that if you eat a fruit which has fallen to the ground, you will yourself contract a disposition to stumble and fall, and that if you partake of something which has been forgotten, such as a sweet potato left in the pot or a banana in the fire, you will become forgetful. The gallery's are also of opinion that if a woman were to consume two bananas growing from a single head, she would give birth to twins. The Guarani Indians of South America thought that a woman would become a mother of twins if she ate a double grain of millet. In Vedic times, a curious application of this principle supplied a charm by which a banished prince might be restored to his kingdom. He had to eat food cooked on a fire, which was fed with wood, which had grown out of the stump of a tree which had been cut down. The recuperative power manifested by such a tree would, in due course, be communicated through the fire to the food, and so to the prince, who ate the food which was cooked on the fire, which was fed with the wood which grew out of the tree. Among the Lakundan Indians of Vancouver Island, an infallible means of making your hair grow long is to rub it with fish oil and the pulverized fruit of a particular kind of poplar, Populus trichocarpa. As the fruit grows a long way up the tree, it cannot fail to make your hair grow long too. At a lumber in central Australia, there is a tree to which the sun, in the shape of a woman, is said to have travelled from the east. The natives believe that if the tree were destroyed, they would all be burned up, and that were any man to kill and eat an opossum from this tree, the food would burn up all his inward parts so that he would die. People supposed to be influenced homeopathically by the nature of the timber of which their houses are built. The Sudanese of the Indian archipelago regard certain kinds of wood as unsuitable for use of house building, especially such trees as have prickles or thorns on their trunks. They think that the life of people who lived in a house made of such timber would be thorny and full of trouble. Again, if a house is built of trees that have fallen or lost their leaves through age, the inmates would die soon or it would be hard to put it to earn their bread. 
Again, wood from a house that has been burned down should never be used in building, for it would cause a fire to break out in the new house. In Java, some people would not build a house with the wood of a tree that had been uprooted by a storm, lest the house should fall down in like manner, and they take care not to construct the upright and the horizontal parts, the standing and lying parts, as they call them, of the edifice out of the same tree. The reason for this precaution is a belief that if the standing and lying woodwork was made out of the same tree, the inmates of the house would constantly suffer from ill health. No sooner had one of them got up from a bed of sickness than another would have to lie down on it, and so to go on, one up and another down perpetually. Before Cherokee braves went forth to war, the medicine man used to give each man a small charm root, which made him absolutely invulnerable. On the eve of battle, the warrior bathed in a running stream, chewed a portion of the root, and spat the juice in his body in order that the bullets might slide off his skin like the drops of water. Some of my readers perhaps doubt whether this really made the men bomb-proof. There is a barren and paralyzing spirit of skepticism abroad at the present day which is almost deplorable. However, the efficiency of this particular charm was proved in the Civil War, where 300 Cherokees served in the Army of the South, and they were never or hardly ever wounded in action. Near Charlotte Waters in Central Australia, there is a tree which sprang up to mark the spot where a blind man died. It is called the blind tree by the natives, who think that if it were cut down, all the people of the neighborhood would become blind. A man who wishes to deprive his enemy of sight need only go to the tree by himself and rub it, muttering his wish and exhorting the magic virtue to go forth and do its baleful work. In this last example, the infectious quality, though it emanates directly from the tree, is derived originally from a man, namely the blind man, who is buried at the place where the tree grew. Similarly, the Central Australians believe that a certain group of stones at Andiara are the petrified boils of an old man who long ago plucked them from his body and left them there. Hence, any man who wishes to infect his enemy with boils will go to these stones and throw miniature spears at them, taking care that the points of the spears strike the stones. Then the spears are picked up and thrown, one by one, in the direction of the person whom it is intended to injure. The spears carry with them the magic virtue from the stones, and the result is an eruption of painful boils on the body of the victim. Sometimes a whole group of people can be inflicted in this way by a skillful magician. These examples introduce us to a fruitful branch of homeopathic magic, namely to that departure of it which works by means of the dead. For just as the dead can neither see nor hear nor speak, so you may, on homeopathic principles, render people blind, deaf and dumb by the use of dead man's bones or anything else that is tainted by the infection of death. Thus along the galleries, when a young man goes a-wooing at night, he takes a little earth from a grave and strews it on the roof of his sweetheart's house just by the place where her parents sleep. This, he fancies, will prevent them from waking while he converses with his beloved, since the earth from the grave will make them sleep as sound as the dead. Homeopathic magic of the dead, employed by burglars for the purpose of a concealment. Burglars, in all ages and many lands, have been patrons of this species of magic which is very useful to them in the exercise of their profession. Thus a South Slavonian housebreaker sometimes begins operations by throwing a dead man's bone over a house, saying, with pungent sarcasm, as this bone may weaken, so may these people weaken. After that, not a soul in the house can keep him or her eyes open. Similarly, in Java, the burglar takes earth from a grave and sprinkles it round the house which he intends to rob. This throws the inmates into a deep sleep. 
with the same intention a hindu will strew ashes of a pyre at the door of the house indians of peru scatter the dust of dead men's bones ruthenian burglars remove the marrow from a human shin bone pour tallow into it and having kindled the tallow march thrice round the house with this candle burning which causes the inmates to sleep a death-like sleep or the ruthenian will make a flute out of a human leg bone and play upon it whereupon all persons within hearing are overcome with drowsiness the indians of mexico employed for this malfunct purpose the left forearm of a woman who had died in giving birth to her first child but the arm had to be stolen with it they beat the ground before they entered the house which they designed to plunder this caused every one in the house to lose all power of speech and motion they were as dead hearing and saying everything but perfectly powerless some of them however really slept and even snored in europe similar properties were ascribed to the hand of glory which was the dried and pickled hand of a man who had been hanged if a candle made of the fat of a malefactor who had also died on the gallows was lighted and placed in the hand of glory as in a candlestick and read and motionless all persons to whom it was presented they could not stir a finger any more than if they were dead sometimes a dead man's hand is itself the candle or rather bunches of candles all its withered fingers being set on fire but should any member of the household be awake one of the fingers will not kindle such nefarious lights can only be extinguished with milk often it is prescribed that the thief's candle should be made of the finger of a new-born or a still better unborn child sometimes it is thought needful that the thief should have one such candle for every person in the house for if he has one candle too little somebody in the house will wake and catch him once these tapers begin to burn there is nothing but milk that will put them out in the seventeenth century robbers used to murder pregnant women in order thus to extract candles from their wombs an ancient greek robber or burglar thought he could silence and put to flight the fiercest watchdogs by carrying with him a brand plucked from a funeral fire homeopathic magic of the dead employed for various purposes again servian and bulgarian women who chafe at the restraints of domestic life will take the copper coins from the eyes of a corpse wash them in wine or water and give the liquid to their husbands to drink after swallowing it the husband will be as blind to his wife's peccadilloes as a dead man was on whose eyes the coins were laid when a blackfoot indian went out eagle hunting he used to take a skull with him because he believed that the skull would make him invisible like the dead person to whom it had belonged and so the eagles would not be able to see and attack him the tarahumaras of mexico are great runners and parties them engage in races with each other they believe that human bones induce fatigue hence before a race the friends of one side will bury dead men's bones in the track hoping that the runners of the other side will pass over them and so be weakened naturally they warn their own men to shun the spot where the bones are buried the belep of new caledonia think that they can disable an enemy from flight by means of the leg bone of a dead foe they stick certain plants into the bone and then smash it between stones before the skulls of their ancestors it is easy to see that this breaks the leg of the living enemy and so hinders him from running away hence in time of war men fortify themselves with amulets of this sort the ancient greeks seem to have thought that to set a young male child on a tomb would be to rob him of his manhood by infecting him with the impotence of the dead and as there is no memory in the grave the arabs think that earth from a grave can make a man forget his griefs and sorrows especially the sorrow of an unhappy love homeopathic magic of animals again animals are often conceived to possess qualities or properties which might be useful to man and homeopathic or imitative magic seeks to communicate these properties to human beings in various ways 
Thus some bucanas wear a ferret as a charm, because being very tenacious of life, it would make them difficult to kill. Others wear a certain insect, mutilated but living for a similar purpose. Yet other Bequana warriors wear the hair of a hornless ox among their own hair, and the skin of a frog on their mantle, because a frog is slippery, and the ox, having no horns, is hard to catch. So the man who is provided with these charms believes that he will be as hard to hold as the ox and the frog. Again, it seems plain that a South African warrior who twists tufts of rat's hair among his own curly black locks will have just as many chances of avoiding the enemy's spear as a nimble rat has of avoiding things thrown at it. Hence, in these regions, rat's hair is in great demand when war is expected. In Morocco, a fowl or a pigeon may sometimes be seen with a little red bundle tied to its foot. The bundle contains a charm, and it is believed that, as the charm is kept in constant motion by the bird, a corresponding restlessness is kept up in the mind of him or her against whom the charm is directed. When a gala sees a tortoise, he will take off his sandals and step on it, believing that the soles of his feet are thereby made hard and strong like the shell of the animal. The Wajokas of Eastern Africa think that if they wear a piece of the wing bone of a vulture tied round their leg, they will be able to run and not grow weary, just as a vulture flies unwearied through the sky. The Eskimos of Baffinland fancy that if part of the intestines of a fox is placed under the feet of a baby boy, he will become active and skilful in walking over thin ice like a fox. One of the ancient books of India prescribes that when a sacrifice is offered for victory, the earth out of which the altar is to be made should be taken from a space where a boar has been wallowing, since the strength of the boar will be in that earth. Homeopathic Magic of Insects when you are playing the one-string lute and your fingers are stiff, the thing to do is to catch some long-legged field spiders and roast them, and then rub your fingers with the ashes. That will make your fingers as light and nimble as the spider's legs, at least so think the galeries, as a sea eagle is very expert at seizing fish in its talons. The gay islanders use its claws as a charm to enable them to make great gain on their trading voyages. The children of the Barunga on Delagoa Bay are much troubled by a small worm which burrows under the skin where its meanderings are visible to the eye. To guard her little one against this insect pest, a Barunga mother will attach to its wrist the skin of the mole which burrows just under the surface of the ground, exactly as the worm burrows under the infant's skin. To bring back a runaway slave, an Arab of North Africa will trace a magic circle on the ground, stick a nail in the middle of it, and attach a beetle by a thread to the nail, taking care as the sex of the beetle is that of the fugitive. As the beetle crawls round and round, it will coil and thread about the nail, thus shortening its tether and drawing nearer to the centre at every circuit, so by virtue of homeopathic magic, the runaway slave will be drawn back to his master. The Patagonian Indians kill a mare and put a newborn boy in its body, believing that this will make him a good horseman. The Lukundan Indians of Vancouver's Islands believe that the ashes of wasps rubbed on the faces of warriors going to battle will render the men as pugnacious as wasps and that a decoction of wasps nests or of flies administered internally to barren women will make them prolific like the insects among the western tribes of british new guinea a man who has killed a snake will burn it and smear his legs with the ashes when he goes into the forest for no snake will bite him for some days afterwards homeopathic magic of snakes and other animals the Barongo of Delagoa Bay carry the powdered ashes of a serpent in a little bag as a talisman which guards them from snake bites. 
Among the Arabs of Moab, a woman will give her infant daughter the ashes of a scorpion mixed with milk to drink in order to protect her against the stings of scorpions. The Cholones of eastern Peru think that to carry the poison tooth of a serpent is a protection against the bite of a serpent, and that to rub the cheek with the tooth of an ounce is as infallible remedy for toothache and faceache. In order to strengthen her teeth, some Brazilian Indians used to hang round a girl's neck at puberty the teeth of an animal which they called capiguire, that is, grass-eating. When a thoroughbred mare has drunk at a trough, an Arab woman will hasten to drink any water that remains in order that she may give birth to strong children. If a South Slavonian has a mind to pilfer and steal at market, he has nothing to do but to burn a blind cat and throw a pinch of its ashes over the person with whom he is equally. After that, he can take what he likes from the booth, and the owner will not be a bit wiser, and become as blind as the deceased cat with whose ashes he has been sprinkled. The thief may even ask boldly, Did I pay for it? And the deluded huckster will reply, Why, certainly. Equally simple and effectual is the expedient adopted by natives of Central Australia who desire to cultivate their beards. They prick the chin all over with a pointed bone and then stroke it carefully with a magic stick or stone, which represents a kind of rat that has very long whiskers. The virtue of these whiskers naturally passes into the representative stick or stone, and thence by an easy transition to the chin, which consequently is soon adorned with a rich growth of beard. When a party of these same natives has returned from killing a foe, and they fear to be attacked by the ghost of the dead man in their sleep, Every one of them takes care to wear the tip of the tail of a rabbit kangaroo in his hair. Why? Because a rabbit kangaroo, being a nocturnal animal, does not sleep of nights, and therefore a man who wears the tip of its tail in his hair will clearly be wakeful during the hours of darkness. The Onomatjara tribe of Central Australia use the tip of the tail of the same animal for the same purpose, but they draw out the sympathetic chain one link further. For among them, when a boy has undergone subsidization, and is leading a solitary life in the bush. It is not he, but his mother, who wears the tip of the nocturnal creature's tail, in order that he may be watchful at nights, lest harm should befall him from snakes and so forth. The ancient Greeks thought that to eat the flesh of the wakeful nightgale would prevent a man from sleeping, that to smear the eyes of a blear-sighted person with the gall of an eagle would give him the eagle's vision, and that a raven's eggs would restore the blackness of the raven to his silvery hair. Only the person who adopted this last mode of constraining the ravages of time had to be most careful to keep his mouth full of oil. All the time he applied his eggs to his vulnerable locks, else his teeth as well as his hair would be dyed raven black, and no amount of scrubbing and scouring would avail to whiten them again. The hair restorer was in fact a shade too powerful, and applying it you might get more than you bargained for. Homeopathic Magic of Animals Among the Cherokees and Other American Indians the Wukol Indians of Mexico admire the beautiful markings on the backs of serpents. Hence, when a Wukol woman is about to weave an embroider, her husband catches a large serpent and holds it in a cleft stick, while the woman strokes the reptile one hand down the whole length of its back. Then she passes the same hand over her forehead and eyes, that she may be able to work as beautiful patterns in the web as the markings on the back of the serpent. Among the Tarahumaras of Mexico, men who run races tie deer hoofs on their backs in the belief that this will make them swift-footed like the deer. Cherokee ball players rub their bodies of eel skins in order to make themselves as slippery and hard to hold as eels, and they also apply land tortoises to their legs 
in the hope of making them as thick and strong as the legs of these animals but they are careful not to eat frogs lest the brittleness of the frog's bones should infect their own bones moreover they will not eat the flesh of the sluggish hog-sucker lest they should lose their speed nor the flesh of rabbits lest like the rabbit they should become confused in running on the other hand their friends sprinkle a soup made of rabbit hamstrings along the path to be taken by their rivals in order to make these rivals timorous in action moreover the bald players will not wear the feathers of the bald-headed buzzard for fear of themselves becoming bald nor turkey feathers lest they should suffer from a goitrous growth of the throat like the red appendage on the thread of a turkey the flesh of the common grey squirrel is forbidden to cherokees who suffer from rheumatism because the squirrel eats in a cramped position which would clearly aggravate the pangs of the rheumatic patient and a cherokee woman who is with child may not eat the flesh of the ruffled grouse because that bird hatches a large brood but loses most of them before maturity strict people indeed will not allow a woman to taste of the bird till she is past childbearing when a cherokee is starting a journey on a cold winter morning he rubs his feet in the ashes of the fire and sings four verses by means of which he can set the cold at defiance like the wolf the deer the fox and the opossum whose feet so the indians think are never frost-bitten after each verse he imitates the cry and action of the animal thus homeopathically identifying himself with the creature the song he sings may be rendered i become a real wolf a real deer a real fox and a real opossum homeopathic magic of animals among the cherokees after stating that he has become a real wolf the songster utters a prolonged howl and paws ground like a wolf with his feet after giving notice that he has become a real deer he imitates the call and jumping of a deer and after announcing his identification for all practical purposes with a fox and an opossum he mimics the barking and scratching of a fox and the cry of an opossum when it is driven to bay also throwing his head back just as an opossum does when it feigns death some cherokees are said to drink tea made of crickets in order to become good singers like the insects if the eyes of a cherokee child be bathed with water in which a feather of an owl has been soaked the child will be able like the owl to keep awake all night the mole cricket has claws with which it burrows in the earth and among the cherokees he is reputed to be an excellent singer hence when children are long of learning to speak their tongues are scratched with the claw of a live mole cricket in order that they may soon talk as distinctly as the insect grown persons also who are slow of speech may require a ready flow of eloquence if only the inside of their throat be scratched on four successive mornings with a mole cricket the negroes of the maroni river in guiana have a somewhat similar cure for stammering day and night the shrieks of certain species of ape resound through the forest hence when the negroes kill one of these pests they remove its larynx and make a cup of it if a stammering child drinks out of such a soup for a few months it ceases to stammer cherokee parents scratch the hands of their children with the pincers of a live red crawfish resembling a lobster in order to give the infants a stronger grip like that of the crawfish this may help us to understand why on the fifth day after birth a greek child used to receive presents of octopuses and cuttlefish from its friends and relations for the numerous arms legs and tentacles of these creatures seem well calculated to strengthen the grip of a baby's hand and to impart the power of toddling to its little toes homeopathic magic of inanimate things on the principle of homeopathic magic inanimate things as well as plants and animals may diffuse blessing or bane among them according to their own intrinsic nature and the skill of the wizard to tap or dam as the case may be the stream of weal or woe thus for example the galleries think that when your teeth have been filed 
you should keep spitting on a pebble, for this establishes a homeopathic connection between you and the pebble, by virtue of which your teeth will henceforth be as hard and durable as a stone. On the other hand, you ought not to comb a child before it has teeth, or if you do, its teeth will afterwards be separated from each other like the teeth of a comb. Nor should children look at a sieve, otherwise they will suffer from a skin disease, and will have as many sores in their bodies as there are holes in the sieve. In Saramakand, women give a baby sugar candy to suck and put glue in the palm of its hand, in order that, when the child grows up, his words may be sweet and precious things may stick to his hands as if they were glued. The Greeks thought that a garment made of the fleece of a sheep that had been torn by a wolf would hurt the wearer, setting up an itch or irritation in its skin. They were also of opinion that if a stone which had been bitten by a dog were dropped in wine, it would make all who drank of that wine to fall out among themselves. Among the Arabs of Moab, a childless woman often borrows a robe of a woman who has had many children, hoping with the robe to acquire the frivolousness of its owner. The Kafirs of Safala, in East Africa, had a great dread of being struck with anything hollow, such as a reed or a straw, and greatly preferred being thrashed with a good thick cudgel or an iron bar, even though it hurt very much, for they thought that if a man were beaten with anything hollow, his inside would waste away till he died. In eastern seas there is a large shell which the Boganese of Celebs call the old man, Kadjoel. On Fridays they turn these old men upside down and place them on the thresholds of their houses, believing that whoever then steps over the threshold of the house will live to be old. Again, the Galleries think that if you are imprudent enough to eat while somebody is sharpening a knife, your throat will be cut that same evening or next morning at latest. The disastrous influence thus attributed under certain circumstances to a knife in the East Indies finds its counterpart in a curious old Greek story. A certain king had no child, and he asked a wise man how he could get one. The wise man himself did not know, but he thought that if the birds of the air might, and he undertook to inquire of them. For you must know that the sage understood the language of birds, having learned it through some serpents whose life he had saved, and who out of gratitude had cleansed his ears as he slept. So he sacrificed two bulls and cut them up, and prayed the fowls to come and feast on the flesh, only the vulture he did not invite. When the birds came, the wise man asked them what the king must do to get a son, but none of them knew. At last up came the vulture, and he knew all about it. He said that once when the king was a child, his royal father was gelding rams in the field, and laid down the bloody knife beside his little son. Nay, he threatened the boy with it. The child was afraid and ran away, and the father stuck the knife at a tree, either a sacred oak or a wild pear tree. Meanwhile, the bark of the tree had grown round the knife and hidden it. The vulture said that if they found the knife, scraped the rust off it, and gave the rust mixed with wine to the king to drink for ten days, he would beget a son. They did so, and it fell out exactly as the vulture had said. In this story, a knife which had gelded rams is supposed to have deprived a boy of his virility merely by being brought near his person. Through simple proximity, it infected him, so to say, with the same disability which it had already inflicted on the rams, and the loss he thus sustained was afterwards repaired by administering to him in a potion the rust which, having been left on the blade by the blood of the animals, might be supposed to be still imbued with that generative faculty. Homeopathic Magic of Iron 
The strengthening virtue of iron is highly appreciated by the Toradjas of central Celebes, only they apply it externally, not internally as we do in Europe. For this purpose, the people of a village assemble once a year in the smithy. The master of the ceremonies opens the proceedings by carrying a little pig and a white fowl round the smithy, after which he kills them and smears a little of their blood on the forehead of every person present. Next he takes a doit, a jobby knife, and a bunch of leaves in his hand, and strikes with them the palm of the right hand of every man, woman, and child, and ties a leaf of the Dracaena terminalis to every wrist. Then a little fire is made in the furnace and blown up with the bellows. Everyone who feels sick or unwell now steps up to the anvil, and the master of the ceremonies sprinkles a mixture of pig's blood, water, and herbs on the joints of his body, and finally on his head, wishing him a long life. Lastly, the patient takes the chopping knife, heats it in the furnace, lays it on the anvil, and strikes it seven times with the hammer. After that, he is only to cool the knife in water, and the iron cure is complete. Again, on the seventh day after a birth, the Toradjas hold a little feast, and which the child is carried down the house letter, and its feet set on a piece of iron, in order to strengthen its feeble soul with the strong soul of the iron. At critical times, the Mahakam Daikas of central Borneo seek to strengthen their souls by biting on an old sword or setting their feet upon it. Homeopathic Magic of Stones At initiation, a Brahmin boy is made to tread with his right foot on a stone, while the words are repeated, tread on this stone, like a stone be firm and the same ceremony is performed, with the same words, by a Brahmin bride at her marriage. In Madagascar, a mode of counteracting the levity of fortune is to bury a stone at the foot of the heavy house post. Oath upon Stones The common custom of swearing upon a stone may be passed partially on belief that the strength and stability of the stone lend confirmation to an oath. Thus the old Danish historian, Saxo Grammaticus, tells us that the ancients, when they were to choose a king, were wont to stand on stones planted in the ground and to proclaim their votes or to foreshadow from the steadfastness of the stones that the deed would be lasting there was a stone at athens on which the nine archons stood when they swore to rule justly and according to the laws a little to the west of st columbus tomb in iona lie the black stones which are so called not for their colour for that is grey but from the effects that tradition says ensured upon perjury if any one became guilty of it after swearing on these stones in the usual manner for an oath made on them was decisive in all controversies. MacDonald, king of the Isles, delivered the rights of their lands to his vassals on the Isles and the continent with uplifted hands and bended knees on the black stones. And in this posture, before many witnesses, he solemnly swore that he would never recall those rights which he then granted. And this was instead of his great seal. Hence it is that when one was certain of what he affirmed, he said positively, I have freedom to swear this matter upon the black stones. Again, in the island of Iran, there was a green globular stone, about the size of a goose's egg, on which oaths were taken. It was also endowed with healing virtue, for it cured stitches in the sides of sick people if only it was laid on the affected part. They say that MacDonald, the lord of the isles, carried this stone about with him, and that victory was always on his side when he threw it among the enemy. Once more, in the island of Flada, there was a round blue stone on which people swore decisive oaths and it too healed stitches in the side like the green stone of Iran. When two Bogos of eastern Africa have a dispute, they will sometimes settle it at a certain stone, which one of them mounts. His adversary calls down the most dreadful curses on him, if he forswears himself, and that every curse the man on the stone answers, Amen. In Laconia, an unwrought stone was shown, which, according to legend, 
relieved the matricide Orestes of his madness as soon as he had set it down and zeus is said to have often cured himself of his love for herda by sitting down on a certain rock in the island of leucadia in these cases it may have been thought that the wayward and flighty impulses of love and madness were counteracted by the steadying influence of a heavy stone homeopathic magic of special kinds of stones but while a general magical efficiency may be supposed to reside in all stones by reason of their common properties of weight and solidity special magical virtues are attributed to particular stones all kinds of stone in accordance with their individual or specific qualities of shape and colour for example a pothole in a rocky gorge of central australia contains many rounded boulders which in the opinion of the warramunga tribe represent the kidneys heart tail intestines and so forth of an old euro a species of kangaroo hence the natives jump into the pool and after splashing the water all over their bodies rub one another with the stones believing this will enable them to catch euros again not very far from alice springs in central australia there is a heap of stones supposed to be the vomit of two men of the eagle hawk totem who had dined too copiously on eagle hawk men women and children the natives think that if any person caught sight of these stones he would be taken very sick on the spot hence the heap is covered with sticks to which every passer-by adds one in order to prevent the evil magic from coming out and turning his stomach the indians of peru employed certain stones for the increase of maize others for the increase of potatoes and others again for the increase of cattle the stones used to make maize grow were fashioned into the likeness of cobs of maize and the stones destined to multiply cattle had the shape of sheep homeopathic magic of stones in new caledonia no people perhaps employ stones more freely for the purposes of homeopathic magic than the natives of new caledonia they have stones of the most diverse shapes and colours to serve the most diverse ends stones for sunshine rain famine war madness death fishing sailing and so forth thus in order to make a plantation of taro thrive they bury in the field certain stones resembling taros praying to their ancestors at the same time a stone marked with black lines like the leaves of the coconut palm helps to produce a good crop of coconuts to make bread fruit grow they use two stones of different sizes representing the unripe and the ripe fruit respectively as soon as the fruit begins to form they bury the small stone at the foot of the tree and later on when the fruit approaches maturity they replace the small stone by the large one the yam is the chief crop of the new caledonians hence the number of stones used to foster its growth is correspondingly great different families have different kinds of stones which according to their diverse shapes and colours are supposed to promote the cultivation of the various species of yams before the stones are buried in the yam field they are deposited beside the ancestral skulls wetted with water and wiped with the leaves of certain trees sacrifices true of yams and fish are offered to the dead with the words here are your offerings in order that the crop of yams may be good again a stone carved in the shape of a canoe can make a voyage prosperous or the reverse according as it is placed before the ancestral skulls with the opening upwards or downwards the ceremony being accompanied with prayers and offerings to the dead again fish is a very important article of diet with the new caledonians and every kind of fish has its sacred stone which is enclosed in a large shell and kept in the graveyard in performing the rite to secure a good catch the wizard swathes the stone in bandages of various colours spits some chewed leaves in it and setting it up before the skull says help us to be lucky at the fishing 
In these and many similar practices of the New Caledonians, the magical efficiency of the stones appears to be deemed insufficient of itself to accomplish the end in view. It has to be reinforced by the spirits of the dead, whose help is sought by prayer and sacrifice. Moreover, the stones are regularly kept in the burial grounds, as if to saturate them with the powerful influence of the ancestors. They are brought from the cemetery buried in the fields, or the foot of trees for the sake of quickening the fruits of the earth, and they are restored to the cemetery when they have discharged this duty. Thus, in New Caledonia, magic is blent with the worship of the dead. Homeopathic Magic of Stones in Melanesia in other parts of Melanesia, unlike belief prevails that certain sacred stones are endowed with miraculous powers which correspond in their nature to the shape of the stone. Thus a piece of water-worn coral on the beach often bears a surprising likeness to a red fruit. Hence the Banks Islands, a man who finds such a coral will lay it at the root of one of his breadfruit trees in the expectation that it will make the tree bear well. If the result answers his expectation, it will then for a proper remuneration, take stones of less marked character from other men, and let them lie near his, in order to imbue them with the magic virtue which resides in it. Similarly, a stone with little discs upon it is good to bring in money, and if a man found a large stone with a number of small ones under it, like a sow among her litter, he was sure that to offer money upon it would bring in pigs. In these and similar cases, the Melanesians ascribe the marvellous power not to the stone itself, but to its indwelling spirit. And sometimes, as we have just seen, a man endeavours to propitiate the spirit by laying down offerings on the stone. But the conception of spirits that must be propitiated lies outside the sphere of magic and within that of religion. Where such a conception is found, as here, in conjunction with purely magical ideas and practices, the latter may generally be assumed to be the original stock which the religious conception has been at some later time engrafted there are strong grounds for thinking that in the evolution of thought magic has preceded religion but at this point we shall return presently homeopathic magic of precious stones the ancients set great store on the magical properties of precious stones indeed it has been maintained with great show of reason that such stones were used as amulets long before they were worn as mere ornaments thus the greeks gave the name of tree agate to a stone which exhibits tree-like markings and they thought that if two of these gems were tied to the horns or neck of oxen at the plough, the crop would be sure to be plentiful. Again, they recognised a milkstone, which produced an abundant supply of milk and women, if only they drank it dissolved in honeymead. Milkstones are used for the same purpose by Greek women in Crete and Melos at the present day. In Albania, nursing mothers wear the stones in order to ensure an abundant flow of milk. In Lacraine, down to modern times, German women have attempted to increase their milk by stroking their breasts with a kind of alum, which they call a milkstone. Again, the Greeks believed in a stone which cured snake bites, and hence was named the snake stone. To test its efficiency, it would only to grind the stone to powder and sprinkle the powder on the wound. The wine-coloured amethyst received his name, which means not drunken, because it was supposed to keep the wearer of it sober and two brothers who desired to live at unity were advised to carry magnets about with them which by drawing the twain together would clearly prevent them from falling out in albania people think that if the bloodstone is laid on a wound it will stop the flow of blood homeopathic magic of the sun the moon the stars and the sea amongst the things which homeopathic magic seeks to turn to account are the great powers of nature such as the waxing and the waning moon the rising and the setting sun the stars and the sea elsewhere i have illustrated the homeopathic virtues ascribed to the waxing and the waning moon 
here I'll give an Arab charm of the setting sun. Homeopathic magic of the setting sun. When her husband is far away and his wife would bring him home to her, she procures pepper and coriander seed from a shop that faces the east and throws them into a lighted brazier at sunset. Then turning to the east, she waves a napkin with which she has wiped herself and says, Let the setting sun return, having found such and such a one, son of such and such a woman, in grief and pain. May the grief that my absence causes him make him weep. May the grief that my absence causes him make him lament. May the grief that my absence causes him make him break the obstacles that part us and bring him back to me. If the charm is unsuccessful, she repeats it one day at sunrise, burning the same perfumes. Clearly she imagines that, as the sun goes away in the west and comes back to the east, it should, at its return, bring the absent one home. Homeopathic Magic of the Pole Star The ancient books of the Hindus lay down a rule that after sunset on his marriage night, a man should sit silent with his wife till the stars begin to twinkle in the sky. When the pole star appears, he should point it out to her, and addressing the star, say, Firm art thou, I see thee, the firm one. Firm be thou with me, O thriving one. Then, turning to his wife, he should say, To me, Orihaspati, has given thee, obtaining offering through me, thy husband. Live with me a hundred autumns. The intention of the ceremony is plainly to guard against the fickleness of fortune and the instability of earthly bliss by the steadfast influence of the constant star. It is the wise and expressed in Kate's last sonnet. Bright star, would I were steadfast as thou art, not in lone splendour, hung aloft to the night. Homeopathic magic of the tides. Dwellers by the sea cannot fail to be impressed by the sight of its ceaseless ebb and flow, and are apt, on the principles of that rude philosophy of sympathy and resemblance which here engages our attention to trace a subtle relation, a secret harmony between its tides and the life of man, of animals and of plants. In the flowing tide they see not merely a symbol, but a cause of exuberance, of prosperity and of life, while in the ebbing tide they discern a real agent as well as a melancholy emblem of failure, of weakness and of death. The Breton peasant fancies that clover sown when the tide is coming in will grow well, but that if the plant be sown at low water or when the tide is going out, it will never reach maturity, and that the cows which feed on it will burst. His wife believes that the best butter is made when the tide has just turned and is beginning to flow, that the milk which foams in the churn will go on foaming till the hour of high water is past, and that water drawn from the well or milk extracted from the cow while the tide is rising will boil up in the pot or saucepan and overflow into the fire. The galleries say that if you wish to make oil, you should do it when the tide is high, for then you will get plenty of oil. According to some of the ancients, the skins of seals, even after they have been parted from their bodies, remain in secret sympathy with the sea, and were observed to ruffle when the tide was on the ebb. Another ancient belief attributed to Aristotle was that no creature can die except at ebb tide. The belief, if we can trust Pliny, was confirmed by experience, so far as regards human beings on the coast of France. Philostratus also assures us that at Cadiz, dying people never yielded up the ghost while the water was high. A like fancy still lingers in some parts of Europe. On the Cantabrian coast of Spain, they think that persons who die of chronic or acute disease expire at the moment when the tide begins to recede. Homeopathic Magic of the Tides 
in Portugal, all along the coast of Wales, and on some parts of the coast of Brittany, I believe is said to prevail that people are born when the tide comes in and die when it goes out. Dickens attests the existence of the same superstition in England. People can't die along the coast, said Mr. Peggotty, except when the tide's pretty nigh out. They can't be born unless it's pretty nigh in. Not properly born till flood. The belief that most deaths happen at ebb tide is said to be held among the east coast of England from November land to Kent. Shakespeare must have been familiar with it, for he makes Falstaff die even just between 12 and 1 a.m. at the turning of tide. We meet the belief again on the Pacific coast of North America among the haters of the Queen Charlotte Islands. Whenever a good hater is about to die, he sees a canoe manned by some of his dead friends, who come with the tide to bid him welcome to the spirit land. Come with us now, they say, for the tide is about to ebb and we must depart. At the other extremity of America, the same fancy has been noted among the Indians of southern Chile. A Chilot Indian, in the late stage of consumption, after preparing to die like a good Catholic, was heard to ask how the tide was running. When his sister told him that it was still coming in, he smiled and said that he had yet a little while to live. It was his first conviction that with the ebbing tide his soul would pass to the ocean of eternity. At Port Stephens, in New South Wales, the natives always buried their dead at flood tide, never at ebb, lest the retiring water should bear the soul of the departed to some distant country. Homeopathic Magic of Grave Clothes in China To ensure a long life, the Chinese have recourse to certain complicated charms, which concentrate in themselves the magical essence emanating on homeopathic principles from times and seasons, from persons and from things. The vehicles employed to transmit these happy influences are no other than grave clothes. These are provided by many Chinese in their lifetime, and most people have them cut out and sewn by an unmarried girl or a very young woman, wisely calculating that, since such a person is likely to live a great many years to come, a part of her capacity to live long must surely pass into the clothes and thus stave off for many years the time when they shall be put into their proper use. Further, the garments are made by preference in a year which has an intercalary months. For to the Chinese mind, it seems plain that grave clothes, made in a year which is unusually long, will possess the capacity of prolonging life in an unusually high degree. Amongst the clothes, there is one robe in particular, of which special pains have been lavished to imbue it with this priceless quality. It is a long silken gown of the deepest blue colour, with the word longevity embroidered all over it in thread of gold. To present an aged parent with one of these costly and splendid mantles known as longevity garments is esteemed by the Chinese as an act of filial piety and a delicate mark of attention. As the garment purports to prolong the life of its owner, he often wears it, especially on festive occasions, in order to allow the influence of longevity created by the many golden letters with which it is bespangled to work their full effect upon his person. On his birthday, above all, he hardly ever fails to don it, for in China, common sense bids a man lay in a large stock of vital energy on his birthday, to be expended in the form of health and vigour during the rest of the year. Attired in a gorgeous pole, and absorbing its blessed influence at every pore, the happy owner receives complacently the congratulations of friends and relations, who warmly express their admiration of these magnificent ceremonies, and of the filial piety which prompted the children to bestow so beautiful and useful a present on the author of their being. Homeopathic magic applied to the sites of cities in China. 
Another application of the maxim that like produces like is seen in the Chinese belief that the fortunes of a town are deeply affected by its shape, and that they must vary according to the character of the thing which that shape most nearly resembles. Thus it is related that long ago the town of the Sun Chun Fu, the outlines of which are like those of a carp, frequently fell prey to the depredations of the neighbouring city of Yongchun, which is shaped like a fishing net, until the inhabitants of the former town conceived the plan of erecting two small pagodas in their midst. These pagodas, which still tower above the city of Sun Chen Fu, have ever since exercised the happiest influence over its destiny by intercepting the imaginary net before it could descend and entangle in its meshes the imaginary carp. Some thirty years ago the wise men of Shanghai were much exercised to discover the cause of a local rebellion. On careful inquiry they ascertained that the rebellion was due to the shape of a large new temple which had most unfortunately been built in the shape of a tortoise, an animal of the very worst character. The difficulty was serious, the danger was pressing, for to pull down the temple would have been impious, and to let it stand as it was would be to court a succession of similar or worse disasters. However, the genius of the local professors of geomancy, rising to the occasion, triumphantly surmounted the difficulty and obviated the danger. By filling up two wells, which represented the eyes of the tortoise, they at once blinded the disreputable animal and rendered him incapable of doing further mischief. Homeopathic Magic to Avert Threatened Misfortune Sometimes homeopathic or imitative magic is called in to annul an evil omen by accomplishing it in mimicry. The effect is to circumvent destiny by substituting a mock calamity for a real one. At Kampot, a small seaport of Cambodia, a French official saw one morning a troop of armed guards escorting a man who was loaded with chains. They passed his house and went away towards the country, preceded by a man who drew lugubrious sounds from a gong, and followed by a score of idlers. The official thought it must be an execution, was surprised to have heard nothing about it. Afterwards, he received from his interpreter the following lucid explanation of the affair. In our country, it sometimes happens that a man walking in his fields has nothing but the upper part of his body visible to people at a distance. Such an appearance is a sign that he will certainly die soon, and that is what happened last evening to the man he saw. Going homewards across the plain, he carried over his shoulder a bundle of palms with long slender stems ending in fan-like tufts of leaves. His family, returning from their work, followed him at a distance, and soon they saw his head, shoulders and arms moving along the road and carrying the branches, while his body and legs were invisible. Struck with consternation at the sight, his mother and wife repaired in all haste to the magistrate and implored him to proceed against the man after the fashion customary in such cases. The magistrate replied that the custom was ridiculous and that he would still be more ridiculous if he complied with it. However, the two women insisted on it so vehemently, saying it was the only way to avert the omen, that he decided to do as they wished and gave them his word that he would have the man arrested next morning at sunrise. So this morning the guards came to seize the poor man, telling him that he was accused of rebelling against the king, and without listening to his protestations of innocence, they dragged him off to court. His family pretended to be surprised and followed him weeping. The judges had him clapped into irons and ordered him to its execution. His own entreaties and the prayers of his family being all in vain, he begged that the priests of the pagoda might come and bear witness to his innocence and join the supplications to those of his friends. They came in haste, but receiving a hint how the wind lay, they advised the condemned man to submit to his fate and departed to pray for his soul at the temple. Then the man was led away to a rice field. 
in the middle of which a banana tree stood to its leaves had been set up as a stake to this he was tied and while his friends took their last leave of him the sword of the executioner flashed through the air and at a single stroke swept off the top of the banana tree above the head of the pretended victim the man had given himself up for dead his friends while they knocked off his irons explained to him the meaning of it all and led him away to thank the magistrates and priests for what they had done to save him from the threatened catastrophe the writer who reports the case adds that if the magistrates had not good-naturedly lent themselves to the pious fraud the man's family would have contrived in some other way to impress him with the terror of death in order to save his life homeopathic magic to avert threatened misfortune again two missionaries were journeying not long ago through central salibs accompanied by some toradjas unfortunately the note of a certain bird called tikka was heard to the left this boded ill and the natives insisted that they must either turn back or pass the night on the spot when the missionaries refused to do either the expedient was hit upon which allowed them to continue the journey in safety a miniature hut was made out of a leafy branch and in it were deposited a leaf moistened with spittle and a hair from the head of one of the party then one of the toradjas said we shall pass the night here and addressing the hair he spoke thus if any misfortune should happen through the cry of that bird made fall on you in this way the evil omen was diverted from the real men and directed against their substitute the hare and perhaps also the spittle in the tiny hut when a cherokee has dreamed of being stung by a snake he is treated just the same way as if he had really been stung otherwise a place would swell and ulcerate in the usual manner though perhaps years might pass before it did so it is the ghost of a snake that has bitten him in his sleep one night a huron indian dreamed that he had been taken and burned alive by his hereditary foes iroquois next morning a council was held on the affair and the following measures were adopted to save the man's life twelve or thirteen fires were kindled in the large hut where they usually burned their prisoners to death every man seized a flaming brand and applied it to the naked body of the dreamer who shrieked with pain thrice he ran round the hut escaping from one fire only to fall into another as each man thrust his blazing torch and the sufferer said courage my brother it is thus that we have pity on you at last he was allowed to escape passing out of the hut he caught up with a dog which was held ready for the purpose and throwing it over his shoulder carried it through the wingwams as a sacred offering to the war god praying him to accept the animal instead of himself afterwards the dog was killed roasted and eaten exactly as the indians were wont to roast and eat their captives homeopathic magic to avert misfortune in madagascar in madagascar this mode of cheating the face is reduced to a regular system here every man's fortune is determined by the day or hour of his birth and if that happens to be an unlucky one his fate is sealed unless the mischief can be extracted as the phrase goes by means of a substitute the ways of extracting the mischief are various for example if a man is born on the first day of the second month february his house will be burnt down when he comes of age to take time by the forelock and avoid this catastrophe the friends of the infant will set upon a shed in a field or in the cattle fold and burn it if the ceremony is to be really effective the child and his mother should be placed in the shed and only plucked like brands from the burning hut before it is too late again dripping november is the month of tears and he who is born in it is born to sorrow but in order to disperse the clouds that thus gather over his future he has nothing to do but to take the lid off a boiling pot and wave it about the drops that fall from it will accomplish his destiny 
and so prevent the tears from trickling from his eyes again if the fate has decreed that a young girl still unwed should see her children still unborn descend before her with sorrow to the grave she can avert the calamity as follows she kills a grasshopper wraps it in rag to represent her shroud and mourns over it like gradual weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted moreover she takes a dozen or more other grasshoppers and having removed some of their superfluous legs and wings she lays them about her dead and shrouded fellow the buzz of the tortured insects and the agitated motions of their mutilated limbs represent the shrieks and contortions of the mourners at a funeral after burying the deceased grasshopper she leaves the rest to continue their mourning till death releases them from their pain and having bound up her dishevelled hair she retires from the grave with the step and carriage of a person plunged in grief thenceforth she looks carefully forward to seeing her children survive her for it cannot be that she should mourn and bury them twice over once more if fortune was frowned on a man at his birth and penury has marked him for her own he can easily raise the mark in question by purchasing a couple of cheap pearls priced three halfpence and burying them for who but the rich of this world can thus afford to fling pearls away end of section six